I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Thanks so much for downloading our podcast. You know, a lot goes into making a live wire show. There's booking our guests, writing sketches, there's rehearsing with a band, and training the monkeys to knit the little microphone covers. Well, if you'd like to help with the cost of any of those activities, please consider visiting our website at livewireradio.org and clicking the donate button. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. Ugh, why did I drive this way? It's okay, we have plenty of time. Well, good, because this is the longest stoplight in the world. Oh, don't move. Why? Is there a bug on me? No, no, just just hold still. What is it? You're freaking me out. Hang on, and gotcha. Ow! Why'd you pinch my neck? I didn't. The, the light here is perfect. You're really backlit. I could, I could really see your wiry chin hair. I thought I could get it. Oh, my God, dude, don't pluck my chin hair in traffic. How embarrassing. What? I'm just doing my spousal duty. Food and teeth alerts, bad breath check, and chin hair patrol. I got your back, babe. Yeah, well, you know, I got your back, too, but I would never pluck a back hair at a stoplight. Don't groom me in public. We're not monkeys. Jeez. Is it gone? Uh, nope. It's still there. Great. Do you think you can get it? Yeah. Okay, fine. Do it. Quickly. Okay, here goes. One, two... Ow! Oh, God! Did you get it? I think it broke in half. Damn it, man! Just give me one more shot. One no, more shot. no, people are watching. We've come this far. You really want it all to be for nothing? The light's gonna change. We'll do it super fast. Come on, ready? Ow! Stop! Okay, just stop. I think I got no, it. Let me see. That is a piece of skin. Am I bleeding? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's still there. Man, that sucker's tenacious. One more try. No, no. You know, I'm gonna shave my whole neck when we get home. <laughs> okay, you know what? That's not funny. It hurt. And it was humiliating. But of course you would find that amusing. It's just kind of a funny situation, is all. Oh, uh, you're going to write a skit about it, aren't you? What? Nah. Yeah, you know, nah. yes you are. I can see it in your eye. This is going to be a skit. A sketch. It's called a sketch. And I, I couldn't write a whole sketch about this, you know. A quick, cold open, maybe. I knew it! This is so your M.O. You take embarrassing personal events and turn them into comedy fodder. It's your formula. Pain plus humiliation plus Microsoft Word equals hilarity. I mean, it's the back of my skirt stuck in my pantyhose for your sister's wedding photo sketch all over again. <laughs> it's, it's... From the historic Mission Theater in Portland, Oregon, where we like to repurpose all the wiry chin hairs we pluck. Where did you think all this fleece comes from? It's Livewire, and now it's the host of Livewire, the pluckiest gal in town, when she's not tweezing or waxing, Courtney Hameister! Welcome to the show, everybody. We've got a really amazing show for you tonight. Um, actually, Steve Almond is here, and he wrote this book called Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, and there's a couple of sort of diatribes in it. And uh, about uh, song lyrics. Uh, one he takes on Toto, uh, and one he takes on Air Supply. But it made me think about sort of song crimes and, and sort of illogical songs. And because I was thinking when I saw, oh, he went he went after I'm Out of Love. I was thinking he should have gone after Even the Nights Are Better. Do you remember this song? Even the Nights Are Better. Now that we're here together, it doesn't make any. 
Even the nights are better? No, the nights are the best part when you're in a relationship because that's where all the sex happens, right? It's, it should be like, even my root canal was better now that we're here. Even cleaning the toilet is better with you. Like, and another song that drives me crazy, You're So Vain. I love Carly Simon, huge fan. You're so vain that you probably think this song is about you. Well, it is about me. I'm not vain, I'm right. It's, it doesn't, and then she's got him gavotting. Who gavots? That doesn't, nobody gavots. But I think, I think the worst one is, I'm gonna go with, we built the city on rock and roll. If you build a city on rock and roll, shouldn't the song that you sing about the city you wrote on rock and roll be a rock and roll song? That's not a rock and roll song. That's A. Also, rock and roll is, is an extremely unstable foundation to build anything on except a drug habit and a possible sex addiction. So, all illogical. All illogical. And I'm sure... Well, Steve will have a lot more interesting things to say about that, and and just all of our guests have interesting things to say tonight. Uh, Tonight we have the former writer-producer for shows like The Simpsons, Futurama, and The Cleveland Show. Bill Oakley is with us tonight. And as I mentioned earlier, one of our favorite writers ever, uh, novelist, essayist, and music fanatic Steve Almond is with us. And our musical guest is a fabulous folk singer from Seattle with a brand new record. Damien Gerardo is here. So before we get to all that, we have to meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater. Please welcome Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, our beautiful siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as per usual, we have Mr. Scott Poole, the author of The Cheap Seats, here tonight. Uh, if you haven't uh, listened to the show recently, what Scott does is, is he, he sits in the audience with you, the audience, and he writes a poem during the course of the show, and then at the end kind of just gives us a poem to, to let us know what's happened during the course of the night, what he's learned. Um, but we couldn't possibly do it without our, our amazing house band. Please welcome Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Well, our first guest tonight worked for six years as a producer, head writer, and showrunner for The Simpsons. He's also worked on shows like Futurama, The Cleveland Show, and Mission Hill. Now he works for himself, creating and pitching new pilot ideas and feature film scripts, and living happily in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Please welcome Bill Oakley to Livewire. Did you enjoy your theme song? Yes. I, 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 well, I have a few notes, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you here. And we're, we're going to do a little experiment with you later, but I want to give the audience kind of a history um, on you a little bit. You worked for the, the Simpsons for six years in various positions, but one of your job there was head writer. And I just wanted to get an idea of what, it, what the job of head writer on a show like that is like just on a day-to-day basis. Well... One thing about being the head writer is it requires a certain finesse in that a lot of the job is learning to reject other people's bad ideas without crushing their souls, and, which is difficult. And it is something because, you know, for every joke that gets on the air, there's probably about 2,000 that you didn't hear that died in the room. Right, mm-hmm. right. So um, what it, what's it like? You, you have this entire staff of funny people, Right. What's it like to be the arbiter of funny in a room filled with funny people? Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's tough, but every funny person has their own strengths and weaknesses, and most of them are crazy, as you probably know, in a variety of different ways. So it's, it's like finding the best mix 
of different styles, different, different crazinesses, and, and, and putting that on the air. And so you, that, that's what you do in order to sort of hire the right people. But just in terms of, like, the experience, is it, is it, does it feel a lot, like a lot of pressure? Did, did you ever feel like, God, maybe I'm not right about that, or maybe that is funny. Am I just a jerk? <laughs> well, I, after a while, I guess, uh, part of what happened with The Simpsons is that I was a huge Simpsons fan before I even got hired, uh, very on in the early days. And so I, uh, I sort of, I, at least I felt I kind of knew what, what the show was supposed to be. And, and part of the job was trying to pick the humor and pick the scenes and pick the actors that would be true to the original version of the show. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to actually pitch some sitcom ideas to you um, yeah. because that's, that's, that's what you're doing quite a that's bit of fan- right that's now. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> is there anything, um, are there any trends that are going on right now in sitcoms that, that we should know about? Well, uh, for those of you who hate sitcoms, I'm sorry to say this, but I think they're coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they're, uh, uh, there's two different types of sitcoms, really. They're the old-fashioned live-action shows that, you know, the, with the live audiences, and that's what you see on CBS mostly. There's also uh, the single-camera comedies like The Arrested Developments and The uh, Modern Family was the big one this year. So right. those, I have nothing to do with it, but I'm happy to uh, take your applause. <laughs> um, so that's... Uh, I think that either one of those two genres is ripe, is really ripe for you guys to, uh, you know, take put your own spin on. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's bring the Faces for Radio Theater uh, out here, and we're just gonna we're just gonna spitball some stuff right now, Bill, and you know, and you just kind of just just whatever feedback comes to mind, just you know. Go ahead and give it, Tyler. You have you have the first one. I have the first one. I think this is the one. Um, picture this: a priest, a rabbi, and a Shaolin monk walk into a bar. They're liquor control inspectors, so every episode they walk into a bar. The best part of this is no writers. The jokes write themselves, and in fact, they already did like a hundred years ago. Um, so it's Cheers meets Father Dowling Mysteries meets The Chosen meets Kung Fu. It'll never ever get old. Sometimes the bar will be locked, so they'll have to knock knock. There's an opportunity there. And it's just, it's not about the bars. A priest, a rabbi, and a Shaolin monk can go to the golf course. They can have car trouble near farms with sexy daughters. And maybe, I'm just speculating, maybe on the season finale, they could all get hit by a bus and go to heaven with very silly results. <laughs> I see Gabe Kaplan in all three roles. Um, and if the, if the religious thing is weird, if that scares you, we can lose that. Um, we can make him a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. In fact, you know what? Let's do that. That's way better. Um, and they're lesbians. You know, uh, Tyler Hughes. I think your idea has a lot of potential. Thanks. Um, I think that uh, I'm a little concerned about Gabe Kaplan, the, the oh. issue of Gabe Kaplan. I'm not sure that the audience wants to see Gabe Kaplan in, in, in three roles. It sounds like kind of a special effects challenge also. True. Might be costly. Uh, and, but, um, but, you know, good work. Good work. Hey, Thank that's you. good Thank feedback. You. Thank I, you. I, I, I appreciate it hearing <laughs> you. Laura? So I think you're really going to like this one. So I think that something inside us all really died the day that the Geico Caveman sitcom was stolen from the airwaves. So I think it's time to bring back the joy and laughter that only can come from comical insurance spokespeople, all right? So we can maybe even learn something about comprehensive coverage while we're at it. Um, So get ready for the Geico Gecko, the Aflac Duck, and Flo, the bubbly weird chick from the progressive ads. So, despite the sexual tension that the ever-shifting love triangle produces, they're roommates and best friends, and they better be because they run their own detective-slash-modeling agency in the Space Needle, which is also a UFO. So, just think of it as the progressive commercial meets the Geigel commercial meets the Affleck commercial. You know, uh, I think that networks might respond to that. For instance, because uh, just like they did cavemen, uh, these are well-known characters that everybody loves. And I think you have to, well, uh, it's a little complicated. Uh, and I think it, maybe I'd prune out some of the, I don't know if the Space Needle's necessary exactly. Um, Eiffel Tower. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'm not sure, you know, can I think about it a little bit? Yeah, Let yeah. me hear the other ones. Okay. Okay, thanks. Okay. <laughs> Stayed up all night on this one. The cast and crew of Livewire sit around all day playing darts and drawing pictures of farm animals equipped with medieval weapons. Until one day, 
A sassy eight-year-old of mixed ethnic background shows up at the door, pronouncing that someone on staff is their biological parent. What? Did the vasectomy Sean and Tyler got when they got hired not take? Or maybe one of the ladies had an Appalachian blackout for nine months and bore a child. They just can't remember. Annie Hoosel, as the DNA tests take 22 to 26 episodes to come back from the lab, that spunky youngster will hoodwink, charm, and flummox everyone on staff. But maybe, just maybe, it'll help Livewire turn into the biggest show in the country. Come on! I think that has a great deal of potential as well. Good. Uh, and and um, I, I, before I, I go into great detail, are there any other any other ones? I think that's yeah. I think that's that's it. Okay. Those well, the best. Uh, I think what again that has it's a little complicated in certain ways. Uh, but I'd say that your um, what's good is have you guys I don't know if you've heard about relatability. There's always this concept of uh, relatability in comedy that people tend to like comedy that has some bearing on their own life, you know, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld got very famous doing that kind of thing, observational. Anyway, relatability also works uh, for writers because people are best, uh, best always at writing something that comes from their own experience, or at least in some way. So you guys, Livewire, I think there's a lot of potential there, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the last sitcom that was set in Portland was uh, Hello Larry, starring McLean Stevenson in like 1982, <laughs> uh, and it was, it, was a, it was a radio show. And uh, also uh, Pacific Northwest, Frasier, radio host. So I think there's something in, in the general vibe of Pacific Northwest and radio that has promise. I would also say that you need a love interest. You need romance in there because that always, uh, people always like it, even though it is a little, you know, maybe it's cliched, but just go for it. Okay. Thank you. Great. It's good. Great. All right. All right. Look forward to seeing it. So what's going to happen is uh, Tyler and Sean and Laura are going to go backstage, and uh, they're going to write up uh, a, probably a scene and a treatment for this uh, new sitcom that I think is going to be pretty, it's going to be sweeping the nation. And they're going to pitch it to Bill uh, at the end of the show. And you're going to let us know what you think. I can't wait to hear it. All right. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Oakley. <laughs> That was Bill Oakley, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio, the variety show that offers your short attention span a shiny new audio toy to play with every seven minutes or so. Coming up, Damien Gerardo, author Steve Almond, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be back in a minute. share just a little lesson that I learned last week. Um, I bought a, a, a wonderful, cute little pair of strappy heels. They were adorable. Mustard suede straps crossed over the top of my freshly painted toes. And um, I, I stepped out of my house, and the five-and-a-half-inch cork heel, it made me look almost like six feet tall. You know, I, was, I, I looked like a model, <laughs> except for the part uh, where I went to place one foot outside of the house, and I turned my ankle, and I tumbled to the ground knee-first, uh, from right around five and a half inches taller than I otherwise would have been. Um, so I was, on my, I was on my hands and knees on my porch, which happens to everybody, right? And I was looking around to see who saw it happen. You know, there always seems to be someone, one person who has to say, you okay? It was quite a spill you took. 
<laughs> when really what they're saying is, that was one of the funniest things I have seen outside of YouTube. You are like a clown to me. But there was no one. You know, falling like that always makes me feel like I'm five years old again and deciding whether or not to cry based on the proximity of various people in my life. You know, if your mother's close by, cry. Your friends, don't cry. Your older brother, don't cry unless, addendum A, your mother is also close by, in which case you cry and blame him. <laughs> but I'm a grown-up now. There was no one to blame but myself because I bought these cork and suede instruments of torture and I put them on to go out for sushi with my brother. Why did I need to be taller for sushi? It's not like the people of Japan are known for their imposing stature, so I'm sure the table would have been plenty accessible from my standard height. And it's not like I needed to be taller for my brother, because he stopped dead punching me in the arm and spitting on me when I was nine. Or it might have been 29, I don't remember. I'd really like to find a way to blame the patriarchy for this. I mean, isn't it the patriarchy that likes to keep women down on their knees, on their front porch? Well, after a little research, it turns out it's not the patriarchy, but the monarchy that's at fault the French monarchy, to be specific. It was Catherine de' Medici's lack of stature and low self-esteem that led her to create the modern high heel in 1533 at the age of 14. See, she was engaged to Henry, the future king of France, but she was really short, and she had what I can only describe as a sad, puffy, rodent-like face. This was, this was not the face that launched a thousand ships. She might have launched like a dinghy, but she would have had to use like her arms and, and legs to just push it off. Now, Henry's favorite mistress, Diane de Poitiers, she had alabaster skin, model long legs, and a face that probably launched some things. And this sent Catherine's self-esteem into the toilet, which didn't even exist yet, so it was really powerful. But she didn't engage in vigorous hair-pulling with Diane or drown her sorrows in a vat of mutton-flavored ice cream. She distracted herself from the pain with a cute new pair of heels. It's a tradition that's still in practice almost 500 years later. So it appears to be Catherine's fault that I fell. But if you really think about it, which you have time to do when you're face down on your front porch and marveling at how hard it is to distract an ant... If Henry hadn't taken a mistress or six, Catherine would have felt fine about herself, and she wouldn't have needed the heels. And her new invention wouldn't have taken off with all the other plain but smart wives who were competing with courtesans and 23-year-old actresses who listed monster ab workouts as a special skill on their job applications. That's actually me. That's not her. So as I crawled to my car... I couldn't blame Catherine for what she did. She was just using every tool she could to get someone to love her. For her, it was a future king. For me, it was random sushi patrons. And FYI, I'm pretty sure it worked. I got a business card from a personal injury lawyer who seemed pretty interested in me. So mission accomplished. Thanks, Catherine. Our next guest is a storytelling songwriter whose songs have been compared to the work of Raymond Carver. He got his start in early 90s punk scene in Seattle. He's since gained more than a cult following with his warm, intimate vocals and minimalist sound. With songs from his upcoming record, St. Bartlett, please welcome Damien Gerardo to Livewire. It's funny how we 
just try to I thought it was impossible to live and love like you show. Thank you for Thanks me. for coming on. Um, I saw an interview with you where you were talking about how you really don't like to reveal a lot about yourself. And, um, but this record feels really intimate to me. Would you say that this is more intimate than, than past records for you? Yeah, it's pretty intimate. Um, I tend to write a lot of uh, from a fictional standpoint and uh, this record was it's almost like a concept record where it was um, it's solely based on a relationship with one of my best friends who spent an entire year in like a mental institution and going crazy and then like um, her family not responding to her at all and thinking she was nuts because she was and then um, and then me pretty much having to take care of her. Um, Lauren Weedman is a solo performer and she talks about her work being autobiographical fiction and one of the things that she likes about that is that she says she can reveal more because people don't know what's true. Is that your experience when you're writing in that way? Um, well this time around I, I was just I just wanted to let it all get Hang out, out there. You know, yeah, yeah. How does it feel performing those songs? Um, yeah it's kind of weird. It's pretty soul-bearing, you know? I mean, it's... Because believe it or not, I mean, these songs are really sad and depressing, and I'm, I'm, I almost feel like I'm ruining your night. <laughs> but, uh, to be honest with you, so I'm, I apologize. But I'm at, and, but in my real life, when, I mean, you know, who I am in my everyday life, I'm, like, the happiest person. I have so much joy, and I'm happily married. I have a son who just turned 10, and life is great, you know? Mm-hmm. So, for me, it's actually a good outlet because life is so great and yeah. to just go in the dark for a while. Yeah. So it's it's nice. You're you're multifaceted. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, you're not ruining our night. It, they're okay. beautiful songs and in yeah. fact Damien's going to come back and sing us another song later. Damien Gerardo, everybody. Next up on the Livewire stage is a writer whose musings have so angered his unfans that he's written a book called Letters from People Who Hate Me. But those people are more than made up for by his rabid fans. They love books like Candy Freak, My Life in Heavy Metal, and Not That You Asked. His most recent book is Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, and it chronicles his life as what he describes as a drooling fanatic. It includes musings on the Kip Winger canon, 
lessons he's learned from Dave Grohl, and some unbelievably humiliating and therefore brave admissions regarding sticks. Please welcome Mr. Steve Allman to Livewire. So this is called What Songs Do. As a broad working definition, art awakens feeling. Every form has its merits and demerits. Paintings, for instance, work fast and require no moving parts, yet are hard to steal. Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. Films are easy to watch and enveloping, but they carry the risk that you will see Philip Seymour Hoffman naked. The only thing wrong with music, as far as I'm concerned, is that you cannot eat it. From a purely emotional standpoint, it remains far more potent than any other artistic medium. And I remember the exact moment this dawned on me. I was watching Late Night with David Letterman. Willie Nelson was the guest. This was the watered-down Willie of the 80s. The stoner cowpoke and dusty pigtails, and Dave was giving him a hard time. Why don't you sing something for us, Dave said, almost tauntingly. Willie sat there for a few seconds, and then he opened his mouth and began to sing, and the sound of his voice sucked every bit of irony out of that room. Georgia, the whole day through. This is what songs do. They remind us that emotions are not an inconvenient and vaguely embarrassing aspect of the human enterprise, but its central purpose. They make us feel specific things we might never have felt otherwise. Every time I listen to Sunday Bloody Sunday, for instance, I feel a pugnacious righteousness about the fate of the Irish people. I hear that thwacking military drum beat and Bono starts wailing about the news he heard today and I'm basically ready to enlist in the IRA and stomp some British imperialist ass, hell yes, bring on the bangers and mash and let's get this McJihad started. I feel these things despite the fact that A, I am not Irish, I am Jewish, and the Irish and the Jewish just have the ish in common. That's that's it. B, Sunday Bloody Sunday, the song actually advocates pacifism, which I find really disappointing every time I hear it. And C, I really hate you too. The same thing happens with Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah. Turn it up. I don't exactly get psyched to join the clan, but I do get this powerful desire to drink beer and drive a pickup truck and maybe shoot off some guns, and most of all, not to be looked down upon by some overeducated loving Yankee such as myself. Intellectually, I recognize the song is shallow and racist in that it advances the notion that the former Alabama governor and avowed segregationist George Wallace is an American hero. I also get that if all the members of Leonard Skinner were still alive, one or more of them would be members of the Republican congressional leadership team. I get that, but I can't help it. Sweet Home Alabama makes me feel a deep yearning for my home and my kin and the swampers down in Muscle Shoals who pick me up when I'm feeling blue. Even though these same swampers would very possibly kick my Jew ass sideways if I ever sidled into one of their taverns and ordered me a Chablis. Like, hey, swampers, want to hang out? Songs take us deeper into ourselves by taking us away from ourselves. They expand our empathic imaginations. When we listen to Jack and Diane, we all become teenagers sucking on chili dogs and reveling in the fleeting ecstasies of green love and then like a half an hour later throwing up because we just ate chili dogs. 
When we listen to I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor, we all become empowered sisters showing our abusive exes the door. And when we listen to Rocket Man, we become astronauts blasted away from our loved ones into orbits of lonely obligation. And God knows we're all homesick travelers when we hear Homeward Bound. Even when we're at home, I can be sitting at home with my family, my beautiful wife and two children, and a fire is roaring, and they're chestnuts roasting over the fire, and this song comes on, and I'm just, let me get home, somebody. (laughs) That's the power of songs. That's what songs do. Welcome to the show, Steve. It's always great to have you here. Thank you. One of the things that you talk about in the book, uh, there's a passage actually in the book that I really liked. Um, You were talking about how you used to just sit and just listen to an entire album back when there were albums. And um, you say drooling fanaticism boils down to undivided attention, which is not only our most endangered human resource, but the first and final act of love. Um, What do you... I think undivided attention is, is dwindling, and, and it seems like you do. How do you think that's going to affect music? Do you think it's going to change music? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> no, no, the thing I would say is that music is one of the last places uh, where people really can pay attention because it's such an exquisitely emotional... You have to listen. When Damien was singing, I just had to listen. Or when Willie Nelson's voice came on. You know, Dave Letterman was doing his The World is All One Big Ironic Game, kind of teasing Willie Nelson. And when Willie Nelson just sang his voice, the room just changed. And everybody immediately was paying attention because something very human was happening. So I think actually music's becoming more important as people get more screen addicted and really more lonely. We just spend all our time in front of screens checking to see whether we're famous yet. And in fact... (laughs) You know, uh, uh, songs are what allow people to reach the feelings that are inside them, but that are inaccessible by other means. So they desperately need music. Right. For a long time, it felt like irony was was kind of the the way to be, and to actually have true emotion was really sort of looked down upon. And it feels a little bit like it's that's okay again. Yeah, I think so. I think I issued a memo on that. Did you? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. It was around the time Obama was elected. And it was like, ah, I guess maybe we should sort of start to take this whole situation seriously so we don't perish as a species. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so. <laughs> Thanks for sending that memo. Well, Obama out. didn't get the memo, but I still wrote it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you write a little bit about depressing songs in the book. Why, when we're depressed, do we want to listen to depressing songs? I mean, I think depression songs are, they're del- wonderful. Like, when you're upset, what you want to know is that Sinead O'Connor uh, understands <laughs> that you're upset. Right. And, and she does. Uh, and so almost every song that I can, that, that's a, that really becomes important to me is a depression song. And it doesn't, it doesn't, depression songs don't make you depressed. Like that whole line that Tipper Gore was running, oh, well, Judas Priest makes kids commit suicide. You know, songs actually rescue most teenagers who are listening to them because they suggest that their feelings aren't just bogus or crazy, but they actually are natural, inevitable feelings that you have if you're really experiencing your life. Um, so, you know, all the songs that I love and have loved over the years almost always commemorate some time that language was inadequate to express. I needed a song to feel the full extent of it and to know that somebody else had felt it before and had converted it into this gorgeous thing. What, what songs did that for you when you were in high school? In high school, um, you know, uh, the, the one that leaps to mind is In Excess's Never Tear Us Apart. It's a very deep and moving and terrible song. Um, <laughs> But I just remember it very vividly because uh, it sort of commemorated, like I thought I I got into a situation because uh, I just got into these situations where I thought I was going to, I and my lover would live for a thousand years and uh, if she cried I would make wine from her tears. Um, 
and, and we would get drunk on that wine. And, uh, and Is chill. that what happened? No, actually, we lasted for about a thousand seconds. Uh, mm-hmm. I should say I did. Um, and then... I'm estimating it might have been less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when she saw me the next day, she just cringed. And it was like, oh, what a bad decision I made. Um, and that song suddenly, uh, which is a sort of dopey soul song, became this kind of heartbreaking, like M- Michael Hutchins was speaking through the ages to me. Uh, and it has remained uh, sort of a, a vital, almost like a touchstone for me, Courtney. So... <laughs> So you've been, you've been a drooling fanatic for a long time. You were a music critic for a while. And yes, you've talked fast. to a lot of musicians um, and interviewed a lot of musicians. How did talking to all these musicians make you a better writer? Talking to musicians, I think, is really tough because what they do is make music. It's a little bit unfair because I think we demand of musicians that they have something to say beyond their songs. And that's kind of what they've given us. You know, We shouldn't ask more of them, especially like Air Supply. They, they've said it all. They're all out of love. Um, what, why do we keep frisking them for more wisdom? Um, well, you, one of the most affecting parts of the book for me was the part about Gil Scott Heron and, and your experience of meeting him. Yep. And, that we ex- and, and as you say, we expect so much from them, and uh, he didn't quite meet your expectations when you met him. Well, they, a lot of these musicians, like... What I was saying to them basically is, why aren't you famous? Why aren't you famous? You're so awesome. Why aren't you famous? And they're like, dude, I wake up every morning saying, why aren't I famous? I don't need you coming, you know, 3,000 miles and asking me why I'm not more, you know, more better known. But what songs have done, and it's not so much talking to songwriters as listening to particular songs, is when I was in grad school trying to figure out how to write, I was trying to be very serious, and I thought that was how you were a good writer. You just get very serious, and and you never let too much emotion show. And musicians immediately grant themselves the right to be emotional. And that was the main thing I learned, is that they could get across an incredibly moving story. They didn't waste any time, and they granted themselves the right to be emotional and to try to move the people who... Um, you know, who, who would eventually hear the song. And so that idea in, in grad school that I had to be like Hemingway, all tough and macho and never express my feelings, was just like I'd listen to a Tom Waits song or a Joe Henry song, and it was just swept right off the table. I was like, I really want to mess my readers up. I, wanna, I want them to feel some of the unbearable feelings that I've felt when I'm, you know, writing. Do you think that's easier to, to do with a song than it is with a novel or, a, or oh, an essay? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't, there's, nobody in, I, there's nobody who doesn't immediately respond to a song. And I think they're different art forms. But, and I love being a writer. But a part of the book is about the fact that I think musicians are like superheroes of the heart. They're like magicians. They speak some crazy language that is really the first and final language. Long before people were saying anything, and certainly before they were writing anything down, they were beating on drums, mothers were rocking children to try to soothe them. It's a much more intuitive, emotional language. I would much prefer, sometimes when I'm doing readings and there's music in the background, like with that Sweet Home Alabama, I was like, let's just listen to this song. Why even listen to me go, blah, 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 blah. Why don't we just, bump, 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 you know, I would much rather hear a mm-hmm. song. So I'm gonna quit writing. And become a musician. Well, that's... Why do you think... Of course, people love writers. They love filmmakers. They do? But... (laughs) Well, they they do. Writers have rabid fans as well. But it feels like this fanaticism is really uh, reserved for musicians. Why do you think that is? I think it's because the dream in the book is making the argument that it's precisely that. I think about 99.9% of people at some point in their life have wanted to be a musician or a rock star, and about you know, 0.0001% get to even be working musicians. But I think the reason is because it's, a, it's an expression, an artistic expression that's completely before words. It's completely atu- intuitive and emotional, and you, ma- you make the sound with your body, it reverberates through you, and it's in the moment. Whereas as a writer, I go off into my little writer cave in my underwear, smelling poorly, and I, you know, bang my head against my doubt for a while, and, you know, poop out some words eventually, and, you know, spend months and months editing them, and gradually, you know, maybe make their way out into the world. But that's not the same as, like, a, a musician 
just getting on stage and rocking out in the moment where the fans are right there as the art is being produced and it's a physical, auditory, emotional experience. This is really making me want to stop writing. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, but everybody... You made writing sound so appealing. Yeah, but, but I think, and I, I know I'm being unrealistic about music too. I have the fans' perspective. I know that for working musicians, they struggle just as much as I must with writing, but I, that's what it is to be a fan. You idealize the thing and say, wouldn't it be awesome? Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is wonderful. The book is Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life. Thanks so much for joining us again. We hope you'll come back whenever you can. Steve Almond, everybody. to Livewire Radio, the show that weeds out all the cool stuff from your never-ending information stream and puts it on the radio in digestible little bits. You're welcome. This show is brought to you in part by Powells.com, where you can find books like Steve's about rock and roll or whatever lesser form of music you may like, wussy pants. Still to come, more from Damien Gerardo and the return of Bill Oakley. We'll be right back after this quick break. show we pitched some sitcom ideas to former Simpsons head writer Bill Oakley. Bill steered us in a little bit of a different direction, but Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, and Laura Faye Smith took the challenge. They wrote a treatment and I believe a scene from the sitcom that Bill recommended for us, and now they're ready to present it to him. Bill, come on up and take a listen to the fabulous presentation we have for you. Bill Oakley and Faces for Radio Theater. All right, we're, we're very excited. We feel pretty good about this. We kept most of it. Um, we really like the idea of uh, Livewire set in Portland, um, you know, going with what we know, like you, like you mentioned. Uh, we found backstage that um, the three of us didn't really test too well um, with uh, some of the folks backstage, so uh, it's a little awkward, but we've been replaced. Uh, we injected some star power in there, so um, actually, Sean was replaced. Uh, what we did is, I mean, we know radio. We know what America likes. We know what's sexy and hot, so Sean was replaced uh, with Garrison Keeler, actually. Um, I was replaced with Robert Siegel, and uh, Laura has been replaced with um, radio darling Dr. Ruth Westheimer, so uh, provided she's still alive. We weren't sure. Um, so set, we're setting the scene here. This is a, a, a post-Livewire date that Dr. Ruth has set up at her apartment where hijinks may ensue. Oh, hello, Robert Siegel. You are on my couch. That's right. I'm Robert Siegel on your couch, Dr. Ruth, ready for action. You know, Robert, I don't like to waste a lot of time. Why don't you go into my bedroom and I'll fix you a drink? Well, Doctor, all things considered, I think that's a lovely idea. <laughs> I'll be in in a moment. Oh, someone is at the door. Hello. Oh, Garrison Keeler. Hey, Doctor Ruth, are you ready for our hot date? We scheduled it earlier this week. Remember? Oh. I've got tickets for Cusa. It's like Cirque du Soleil, only with more nudity. And I, I go check on something in the bedroom. You mind if I turn on the ball game? Yes, yes, go The boys ahead. of summer as they play wistfully and I can ruminate on seasons of my youth. 
Well, you were gone so long, Doctor. I, I found some scented oils and applied them liberally to my uh, hairy chest. Oh, yes, I see you are glistening. Listen, um, I am thinking it is very hot in here. You know what makes me hot, Dr. Ruth? I couldn't help but notice Garrison Keeler eyeing you up and down in the green room after Livewire. <laughs> Why don't you climb down the fire escape and I will uh, slide on down to your pole. I'll be right back. I like what I see. Let me ask you this. Have you bumped into Robert Siegel recently? I was about to. Well, I tell you, he's been telling me about this hot date he's got lined up for for weeks now. I'm dying to know the details. Someone is at the door. Oh, Robert! Garrison Keeler, what the... Robert Siegel, what's going on here? All things considered, I'm about to kick your ass. Bring it on. No, 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 no. No, I can explain, gentlemen. Well, you better, because most women who cross garrison wind up in cement shoes at the bottom of Lake Wobegon. Well, uh, I just wanted to see how our collaboration on air would be helped if we got our creative juices all over each other off air. You know, Garrison, I don't know if it's the scented oils doing the talking, but I'm willing to collaborate. How about you? I'm not so sure, Siegel. No one... Double books, GK. Oh! But that's where you're misunderstanding. I like to be double booked. I don't think that's going to (laughs) air. So what, 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 what you think of that? Well, uh, 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 um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 in all honesty, I had a little trouble remembering who Robert Siegel was for most of the piece. Uh, but then when you said all things considered, I got it and it clicked. So that's good. You know, it's a little bit of a, a questionable caching choice. We can talk about that later. But I want to say, in, in all honesty, I, I, I loved it. I mean, I think you guys did... Um, you, you really did a great job, and, and especially considering that most sitcoms take weeks, a dozen guys, weeks to write. And you did that in, in, in 35 minutes. I mean, that's very impressive. But uh, let me frame a, a slightly bigger picture response in terms of what kind of, uh, what a network executive might say. I think a network executive would probably just say no. They, uh, uh, I think they would say no, and, and a less polite one uh, might say, get out of my office. Uh, a, 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 a more diplomatic one might say something like, uh, we'll let you know, okay? Uh, so that's, uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of uh, marketability in terms of television stuff, but I do think that uh, you should all uh, feel really good about yourselves, and uh, also uh, that you, um, you know, I think you really have a home on radio. <laughs> so, uh, Bill Oakley and Faces for Radio Theater the new Faces Radio Theater sitcom. What a nice man. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Damien Dorado. you're fine and walking with me through the aisles of a drugstore yeah you return to me oh if you return to me your mother is a fake a phantom who steals the smile on your face is not what you feel I'll check you in if you check me out Some lonesome wrist cutter who says I'm a brother If you return to me Oh, if you return to me Was I the ghost 
One of your voices you hear in your head when you're out killing horses. Who's taking my place? Who's taking you home? Well, I don't think it's safe to turn out the nightlight if you return to me. Oh, if you return to me. I read your reviews, I studied the lines and I know them so well. My life's now a tragedy, one for the road and two for the plane. And I would be fine so long as you take me if you return to me. Oh, if you return. to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister. And if you love the show, you'll really love our podcast. All the great content, but portable. Take us with you to work or on errands, to the library or to the park. Just not the gym. We really, really hate the gym. (laughs) And now, as promised, with another piece of writing that happened on this make-em-up-as-we-go-along show, please welcome Scott Poole, who's been writing for the last 56 minutes, and now he's going to let us know what we learned tonight. Please welcome Scott. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned I want to be a Shaolin monk. No, I want to be the friend of a Shaolin monk. That would be better, as long as I could wear a smaller version of the robe and be a mini monk. A shallow monk I could walk into bars with so people can write jokes about a poet in a bathrobe and a monk. Or make up a TV show name like Chico and the Man called, like, Pulio and the Monk. That would be so cool. Actually, I want to walk into a bar with a shallow monk and a phalanx of writers for a hit television show who can write me pre-choreographed moves meant to elicit maximum jokes, but I think I should have a bucket of pickles and a naked midget with a chainsaw, just for insurance. And I want to walk into a bar with a Shaolin monk wearing five-inch heels versed in French history. You thought the monk was a guy, didn't you, you sexist bastards? So I'm walking into this bar with this sweet, smoking hot monk who cooks me food all the time. A phalanx of writers, and all the writers are wearing race numbers, just so people would think we just finished a fun run, because I want everyone to feel the fun. And I have a guitar, and I'm singing a hopeful walking song like Damien Gerardo. And I want everyone in the bar to be Steve Allman, including the guy running the jukebox. When I walk in with a Shaolin monk on sexual fire, singing my rhyming songs with my fun-run hopeful writers, when Steve is playing Sweet Home Alabama, and I order Chablis for the whole house, and did I mention we all walked in backwards so we could show our butts for maximum comic effect, and then we do flash dance moves, and monkeys explode from the ceiling with glasses of iced tea and start plucking out everyone's chin hair. When all that happens, I don't want any damn network executive to tell me that my life isn't television worthy, because I don't really need that now, okay? Because that's not the point, okay? Is anyone having fun is the point. So write a joke about that already so I can go home with the sweet, hot-smoking monk. Scott Poole. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for coming out. Our 
thanks to our guests tonight, Bill Oakley, Steve Almond, and Damian Gerardo. The Mutton Chops were Ralph Hutney, Jonathan Newsom, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, Powell's Books, Tonkin Torp, Fitch & Associates, The Falcon Art Community, The Regional Arts & Culture Council, New Belgium Brewing Company, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brunberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Nalene Silva. House sound by Ernie Hawkins. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath. Performer Laura Faye Smith and Siren of Sound Pachinowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management and lighting by Drew Flint. Theme by Courtney Mondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Old Wives Tales. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our wardrobe stylist is Cami Gray. Learn to dress like us on CamiGray.com. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Gazelle Communications. For more information about Livewire or to download our podcast, visit our website at LiveWireRadio.org. This is Tyler Hughes. Another show in the can and one more hour of community service fulfilled. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. <laughs>